Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The fact is that a week before I was dropped from the England team for the first time in 11 years, I had given um, my account of what I felt was discrimination towards me, what I felt was a bullying culture. So... Whichever way you look at it, being part of that cultural review has cost me my, potentially cost me my own career. Hello and welcome to the book club with me, Kate Mason. And me, Jim Campbell. For this week's book club, we start in a fairly conventional place. Some kids are just really good at football. Wherever they go, they'll find other kids to play with. They're honing their skills so that by the time they're being scouted, it's so instinctual that people say... They were born to play the game. Parents watching on predict great things, glory, top clubs, if they can just show the right people what they've got. And Ioluko is one of those kids. But unfortunately for her, just letting her football do the talking wasn't to turn out to be the only option. I categorically refused to write any statement because I'd already suggested that I did not, it's not for me to come up with that, to come up with that um, uh, determination that the FA are institutionally racist. It's not for me to come up with, I've never said that publicly and I've never said that. My comments have always been based on what I felt were racist comments to both myself and Juju Spence. This week for Book Club, we're reading They Don't Teach This by Aniola Aluko. Still Aluko. Still Aluko. Going all the way. What a chance. What a goal by Aluko. She's beaten the entire Dutch defence and equalised with an outstanding solo effort. Eniolo Aluko does it all herself. What a goal. 
Emilia Aluko's professional achievements make for extraordinary reading. She has 102 England caps, has won multiple titles playing at the highest level in England, Italy and the United States and is an Olympian having represented Team GB at London 2012. She was also the first female pundit on Match of the Day and for good measure is a qualified solicitor too. For many people outside of football, she's known for taking on the FA after they failed to look into her concerns about racial discrimination and bullying within the England women's setup. And she covers that story with candour here. But they don't teach this. It's really the story of how an extraordinary woman pushed herself and her talents to their very limits and about what she learned on the way. And I'm so happy to say, guys, that we have Eni Aluko here in the Football Ramble studio to tell us all about that. Eni, thank you so much for Hi joining. Guys, thank you so much for an amazing introduction. <laughs> it's just so great that you've been able to come in and talk about uh, They Don't Teach This. And one thing that we really enjoyed, I think, uh, reading the book is how listening to the story of a female player in your era, if you like, is yeah. so much more akin to something from the men's game in like the 60s where right. you can really relate to the player, like the kind of money they're on, the kind right. of lifestyle they're leading. Right. And and it's so interesting to hear that side of football playing out. Yeah, no, well, thanks. First of all, thanks for thanks for reading the book. Um, I, I still always get so sort of happy when I see <laughs> peers, um, you know, peers that I respect, you know, reading my book. Um, but you're right. I think, you know, I look back and I think, wow, we really played for the love of the game. You know, and it's the real romantic side of it was was what it was for such a long time, probably up until 2012, um, where the Olympics kind of was a bit of a game changer for women's football and the money and the sponsorship started coming in. But prior to that, it was like, yeah, it was like, you know, I was just an ordinary person trying to kind of balance becoming a lawyer and having a good plan B and, you know, playing football, um, you know, when I was a bit younger at Birmingham, we used to pay subs, you mm. know, we'd pay £5 for our kit and we were happy to do so because it was like, we just loved football. Um, so, and I think now it's it's pretty topical actually because we look, I think there's been a lot of conversation in football around, you know, what the lower tier of football looks like and, and how important it is for football. And, and it reminds me of women's football. It reminds me mm. of that, like... We really only we really used to do it just for the love of it, um, and ultimately, I think that's what keeps us going. You know, that's yeah. what that's what keeps it very honest. Yeah, it sounds like from the book there are some great passages early on when you talk about playing up the, on the field near your, near your, where you lived with your brother uh-huh. and just the, the kids that lived around there and you know you talk of sort of dreaming about playing at Wembley and like you know I used to kick a ball around with my brother in the garden and we'd dream about playing at Wembley but at the same time. Did you have to sort of edit that dream so that when you played at Wembley, women's football took off as well? And so you had to, it's almost <laughs> like there's, there's more had to happen in your dream uh, than, than in mine. But it actually did, it actually did take place in that way. Because it sounds like from the book, it took, it took a while to even find a women's team, to even right. find the women's game, let alone just kicking the ball around with, with your mates outside. Like, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, so I started playing football at five years old. Um, you know, in the local estate in Birmingham, and it was all boys. Mm. And um, I was very easily accepted within the boys group, but I became known as sort of the only girl in the boys team. And I was quite happy with that. Um, But then it started, then it kind of became a thing where it was like, well, I can't be the only girl, surely. Um, (laughs) I can't be the first person to have thought of I'm not an alien that's like come from another planet. So then I, you're right, it took until like 12 years old for me to actually see other girls that played football. Um, 
And I think in relation to the dreaming stuff, like I, I couldn't really dream about Wembley because mm. it just wasn't even any close to being attainable because it wasn't on TV. There was just, there was nothing, um, anything, there was nothing, any, anything close to it aside from like watching the Williams sisters play at Wimbledon and it was a completely different sport. Yeah. So between the ages of 10 and 12, I actually played tennis because I was like, actually that's probably more of an attainable thing to do. Um, you know, two strong black women and it just, it became something I wanted to do. But then I quickly realised I wasn't as good at, at tennis as I was at football. So I wasn't really able to dream like my brother. Mm. Um, but, and, and so the, the the road was really windy in a way. There wasn't a sort of a linear, um, the, the only, t- so I've, I probably realised I could become a professional footballer when the year before I got offered a, a contract (laughs) it wasn't something I grew up thinking I could do at all actually yeah did that bother you so Sonny obviously he's Mm. playing for Reading Reading doing really well in the championship top of the table I think Um, did that when you became aware of that did that bother you because you're obviously playing together he's younger than you right he's two years younger yeah yeah. so you're like the older one Um, you're the senior partner here but he could go on and have something that yeah not really I mean um you know, my mother's very wise um, and sort of quite philosophical. And um, she never really made me feel as if I was disadvantaged for being a girl. Mm. Um, it was more, you know, you have a different path and you have, you know, y- your gift will be used in different ways to your brother. So I always saw it like that. And it was, you know, we, we just kind of, we, we enjoyed this sport together. We, we were big Man United fans growing up before Eric Cantona broke my heart and left. Um <laughs> So we we shared the passion of football um, and I always saw my path that was going to be different to his. Mm. Um, So, so yeah, no, it was never a sort of a resentment thing or, um, and, you know, interesting, he always says to me now, you have so many more, so much more options than I do coming out of the men's game. Obviously, financially, you know, it's completely different, but... um, in terms of career security moving forward, he he always says to me, actually, you have you have more going for you, and um, because you've gone to you know you've become a lawyer, you've, right. you've done a master's, you've done all of these things, and um and whereas he he kind of looks at it and says, okay, you know I'm you know I'm I'm secure for the rest of my life, but I still want to do yeah, yeah I still want to do something with my life you know, um so it's it's quite an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, I suppose that's part. But I guess that is because you have done something quite special, though many women's players had to do that because, yeah, yeah. you know, they knew they're not going to be set up for life. And we'll definitely talk more about that um, as we go. But I want to hear a bit more about, um, so you you were a good player, you found a team to play with, and then you were called up to, to the England squad. Yes. And... Um, Unfortunately, you were going to stand out on the first day you turned up for that. Can you tell us a bit yeah, about that? I really like. I haven't lived down the story. So, um, yeah, so the, I got called up for England at fourteen. I was playing for Birmingham at the time, and um, it was a massive deal. Like it was a huge deal for me and my family. And um, um, the letter came through. My my mom laminated the letter immediately. Um, this is where laminating was like the thing to Pretty do. Pretty big, yeah. Um, so it didn't get damaged, right? It didn't get yeah. damaged. So she kind of laminated it and it was this big thing in the house. And anyway, um, it was at the first camp, I believe, was at Loughborough. Yeah, it was Loughborough. And um, my mom was like, well, you know, there was sort of no direction as to what to wear. 
So my mum was like, well, no, you've got to, you've got to wear a, like, you've got to look smart. Um, you know, almost as if like it was my first day of school. So I turned up to the England camp, like in like a skirt suit and uh, shoes. And it was like, oh God, I realised it wasn't that, it, you know, everybody else was in England tracksuits or tracksuits of some sort. <laughs> <laughs> but before lunch, you must have, did you think? No, I didn't. No, I generally didn't. No, I just thought, I, you know, it was kind of seen as this big thing yeah. in, in my house. It was like, no, you've got to turn up. You can't turn up in a tracksuit. Yeah, um, it's like you're getting, a, getting an MBE or something. Yeah, <laughs> it, was like that. it was like that. And we just didn't have a clue. So, I, you know, I turned up and um, I think, you know, I've never lived it down. It's quite a funny story. But I mean, I quickly rushed and, and got a tracksuit on when I got there. But um, So you, you took a spare tracksuit just in case? No, no. So I had to ask for one oh, God. when I got there because it was like, well, you know. So for most of the sort of meetings and stuff, I had, uh, you know, I had my introductory meetings. I had my suit on and yeah. it was just really embarrassing because it was like, <laughs> oh, God, you know, the kid that didn't quite get the memo. Um, but actually, I think looking back, it really reinforced how much it meant. Mm how important it was yeah. um, for, for me and my family. Yeah, and before you were able to go, that, that was another crucial book, moment in the book that I thought was told really nicely um, about your passports. Yes, yes, yeah. So at the time, um, I didn't have like my British passport. So we, we, we'd been in England for a long time and so we were eligible for, but we just never got around to actually getting one. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, at this point, my mom, you know, single parent, um, you know, grafting, had just started a new business. So the, the getting sort of traveling wasn't high on the list of priorities. <laughs> so she just didn't think, you know, didn't necessarily think about it. And, and then it was like, Oh, I, I, I need one. Um, I needed a British passport. And it was this kind of, um, it was almost like a sort of a, a challenge to to who I was because all of a sudden it was like, why why don't I just have a British passport? Like, mm. And then I, I sort of my Nigerianness hit me. Um, and, you know, being different, a different kind of England player kind of hit me. Yes. Um, I was so desperate to kind of have this passport and, um, you know, be be just sort of accepted in 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 the group that it kind of embarrassed me. But actually, it was just reality of who I was. You know, I was a sort of you know second generation Nigerian um, immigrant who had you know grown up in 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 England, but I'd never had to think about it before then. Yeah, the phrase you use in the book is hyphenated, hyphenated. isn't it? Which is a really nice way of of looking at and giving both of those kind of backgrounds and identities sort of equal weight. Um, yes. So I mean. One of the things I've, I find really I found really um, eye opening in the book was um, how much pride you talk about um, in being an Olympian, not just a not mm-hmm. just a footballer or an mm-hmm. Olympic footballer, but actually an Olympian as well. Which I think is with it's something that as as a football obsessive, it's sort of easy to forget that that's a separate thing when you think yeah. about Team GB at the Olympics, and that seemed to be something that really kind of brought the women's game forward in 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 a huge yes. huge way. So, yeah, I mean, that must have. I mean, that must have been unreal, right? Just to, to was, be a part of unreal. that. It was unreal. And, and to be honest, I think football's a little bit snobby in, in that sense. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's And we had this kind of snobbery where we thought, you know, football was going to be the be all and end all of the Olympics. And it just wasn't. Like yeah. we were just like, we were like not important in comparison to all the other incredible athletes that were like getting up at 6am swimming and 
running and doing all the other stuff and and the experience allowed us to understand that you know so i made a point of kind of watching the boxing and watching the the archery and all these other sports that i'd never been exposed to and it really humbled us as footballers because it's like we don't do anything mean <laughs> what these people do like we should never complain again you know um so that whole experience it just made me so proud to to kind of be an athlete amongst yeah. a sort of family of athletes um i remember walking you know we we stayed in the olympic village for a week and it was like like this sort of athlete utopia it was like it was amazing i remember walking into a into the lift and mo farrell was there and i was kind of like oh my god it's mo farrell <laughs> he had no idea who i was <laughs> and um it, it's just um it's just an amazing experience and as you said it really opened the world up to women's football because we opened up the olympics and i think it was like oh women are really good at football yeah. um and then everyone sort of jumped on the bandwagon and followed us and we you know we played at Wembley 70,000 people it was just incredible it was just you know a highlight of my life i think i'm so excited to hear you talk about it because it was so yeah london 2012 was like i don't know just for me in deciding to become a sports broadcaster it was like a massive moment right, then right. and watching women play football in at Wembley and just seeing all those people oh, watching it it just like I was I I just cried I yeah, just thought it was so amazing. exciting it was amazing it was really a game changer um because we we'd had a Euros in 2005 but it, it didn't really have the same kind of um it didn't have the same kind of global impact mm. that the Olympics did for women's football um and lo and behold, off the back of that, the WSL started, clubs started giving their contracts to players, better better facilities, better resources, because I think it just lifted the respect of the game and, and the investment in the game. And, and here we are now in 2020, where it's kind of the best league in the world. So I'm really, I'm just super grateful to have been sort of right place, right time, home Olympics um, and playing. Because being a footballing Olympian is pretty special as well yeah. as a British person because... It doesn't really happen. It doesn't really happen. I mean, I think obviously we'll have a team in the 20, 2020 um, Olympics, but that's taken a lot of political wranglings, I think. I mean, the most kind of bizarre time, I think, feels like when you were 18 and you were trying to pass your exams to get into university. <laughs> you, If I remember right, you had an exam kind of moved somewhere so that you could then leave for the Euros. Yeah, so... Did you... Looking back on that now, any because in the in the book it feels like oh this is all just quite chaotic and <laughs> wild and oh look I'm doing an exam but I'm also playing international yeah. football. I I had to have a lie down even reading about that. <laughs> yeah, it's just bonkers. It's, it's, it's amazing that you you managed yeah, that. It's bonkers. I mean, I I look back now I'm like oh my god why did I do that? But I, it just I, I think at the time I was just in this mindset all the time of like how can I play football? Like I just need to be able to play football so. Whatever can I can do to fit around that? Mm. I mean, I just I, there was no real compromise on my education. Um, you know, my mom was quite strong on that, and 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 I, you know, I I'm the kind of person I always want to do well in whatever I do. So I wanted to do well in my in my GCSEs and my A levels. So, um, but it, the, the timing just clashed. So <laughs> when it came to we played at the Etihad Stadium, well, the now Etihad Stadium, I can't remember what it was called then, and um, I managed to arrange for my college to let me do the exam in some random place in Bolton. I can't remember. It was random. That can't and help your 
shout out to hope powell as well who let me do it because yeah. i mean she could have easily said no that's not going to work like i need you i need you prepared and head on the game um but she she allowed me to do it she believed in education and um and yeah so i did the exam in the morning got this really fancy mercedes chauffeur <laughs> to the game and uh yeah got, got got ready for the game was on the bench came on um yeah and got a, got a d in the exam <laughs> <laughs> so i wouldn't advise it yeah. i wouldn't advise that kind of prep to anyone <laughs> I, th- I guess like it is easy to look back on that and go that's that's so much to take on but that's that's you know with me having read the book and you having obviously lived your life like we know yeah. we have the the benefit of hindsight but i guess at the time like it would would have been the same for all all female footballers. You didn't really yeah. know where the game was going, no, we didn't. so you had to you had to take that chance. Yeah. Is that or defer for a year? Yeah, like, exactly, exactly. And there was a lot of players that were working. You know, had mortgages. It's a little bit like how rugby was back in the mm. day. You mm. know, for the men's men's sides, it the was gentlemen like, amateurs. Though. Yeah, that it was, was like, like we, we must am- not take money. We- <laughs> right, we were amateurs. We were, and we yeah. were sort of trying to sort of play for our country whilst trying to afford you know careers like any other you know young people um and um yeah so it was it, it was tough but i think it's 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 made us stronger you know now yeah. because now we look at the game and we go you know, for, certainly for someone like me who's still working in the game and i'm able to sort of have um relationships with players where i can sort of guide them and help them um it's been able to say look you know football is a priority but Invest in yourself too. Invest mm. in your plan B. Invest in your education. Mm. Um, you know, I'm really pleased to have just launched a program at Aston Villa called Students of the Game, and I wanted it to be that the club were investing in, um, you know, the education of players, um, so that whatever happens in their life, whether they get injured a lot, you know, God forbid, a, a long term injury, or they get released. They don't feel like their life is over. Mm. They've got some other aspect of their life that they can put energy into. I think it's super important. Well, it's a real, really been a big problem and something that's been discussed. I mean, recently yeah. um, a kid yeah. killed himself yeah. off the back of... 17. I mean, yeah. Yeah, whenever I read his age, I just think, God, like it it's just makes my heart sink. Mm. But um, th- that's what I'm talking about. This kind of football is everything. It defines me. It's everything. It's so dangerous because actually for every Raheem Sterling, there's about 20 kids that, well, more than that, mm-hmm. that mm. don't make it. And you, you can't expect these kids to have the level of emotional maturity that is needed at that age to handle such a big rejection, isn't it? If you are at a huge yeah. club and it doesn't work out, it's going gonna, it's, yeah. it's gonna to just punch this hole in your life. And it's, yeah. as you say, it's so important that there's a net there, that there's something it's ready that to... that aftercare bit. Yeah, absolutely. It? And, and it's, it's also... Yeah, and it's also just giving people other avenues. Um, give, investing in people. You know, I think players have become commodities and assets, but it's people. You know, if 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 I if I say to you, yeah, you know, we want to give you everything to be a top footballer, but we also want to give you everything to, you know, make sure that you're studying in, in, a, in a course you want to study in. It's up to you what you do with it. But I'm investing in you as a person outside of you as a footballer. It has nothing to do with the club, mm. you know, in terms of... So it's. I think more clubs should do it. Um, 
because you know it, it you can't be defined and and forget football anybody you know whatever we do in life we we our work you know some of us are lucky to sort of our passion becomes our work which is really great but for those of us that have you know jobs you, you can't let it sort of take over your life and you know you've got to sort of have another outlet I think it's really healthy it sounds as though it did for you some of the passages where you for example didn't win the FA Cup the oh, first yeah. time with yeah, Chelsea yeah. yeah you know spoiler alert she does in the end guys which is great <laughs> um but the, and I think that's credit to the kind of the process of writing the story with mm-hmm. with Josie LeBlond mm-hmm. um who you wrote it alongside you clearly are someone who feels things very very deeply in terms yes. of of defeat like that and the way that that's written I mean I loved the fact that you could get a real hold on what it meant to you I I, Mm. is it was a real kind of privilege to be inside your mind in that Mm. moment but wow how did you deal with that yeah no I think um so everything I've just said I think is is me sort of five years on from from that victory um and six years on from biggest failure of my life and so I've learned a lot of, I've learned that actually you can't just sort of let football dictate everything. And, you know, so the book starts off talking about that failure where, you know, we lost on the last day of the season and we lost the league on the last day of the season. It was this big public embarrassment. I felt like I'd let loads of people down, wanted to quit football. Um, it was like, I'm done. Um, and it was this kind of like, you know, just shattering of like I just felt completely worthless um, and I was working at the time at um, a law firm part-time and I remember calling writing in and saying I can't come to work and I got an email and this was a massive reality check for me and I got an email back from my boss at the time and he said any I understand you know you've lost a football game but there's there's a staff member who lost his wife recently like and he still came into work and I was like oh oh god and do, do you know what I mean and it's sort of it was this kind of like football was I just couldn't it was like it was everything and there was no perspective um and I think failure can be that for a lot of people like if you if you if it you know it's really important that I, I think I learned that failure can be a springboard to to success and you can't let it kind of defeat you in the way I I let it defeat me I was like I want to quit football I can't go into work um obviously you can be disappointed and you can process it but it, it can't be a thing where it just kind of overtakes your life so um you know and 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 that was 2014 2015 we won <laughs> so and and I and I genuinely think the, the the reason we won is because everybody in that team was able to process that defeat and it give us this fire to kind of go that one step further. And I don't think Chelsea have looked back since, you know, since 2015, it's just been win after win after win. It's like it broke something. Yeah. Um. So I'm super proud of that. Super proud of not just, you know, the win, but the lesson about, you know, failure and success and using failure to kind of, you know, shape you make you better it sounds like a very intense way to live your life if you're like living at that level of <laughs> competition you know it's too much and that yeah. may that was, this kind of leads me to 
something I've been wondering about about your retirement, which is fa- fairly recent. So yeah. you retired with Juventus, having won a treble and finished as their top scorer. So <laughs> I think we can assume you've probably got something left in the tank if you did want to carry on. Yeah. But w- was, did you deliberately choose to go out on a high yes. so as to like go, you know what, I'm done with how stressful this is. Right. And it w- right. You've summed it up. You've summed <laughs> it up. That's exactly um, what I was thinking. I think that's just how... Um, my brain kind of works and I I also didn't really want to kind of um there's there's a combination of factors so there's that what you've just said about sort of always wanting to leave at the top of the mountain mm-hmm. um which is there's something kind of really empowering about that um I was also missing home um you know living in Turin Juventus is everything and I'm a person that actually likes to have things outside of football, as mm. I've mentioned. So it, that was quite all-consuming, living in living in Turin for, for that amount of time. Um, and then there was like, you know, the opportunities here. It was like, okay, do I get one-year contract at maybe a lesser club? Um, or do I try and now focus on my next the next five years of my life and start another career? Um, there was that. So I wanted to invest in my future. Um, and and obviously take on this sporting director job, um, but it was it was a combination of all those things. But I quite like the fact I finished at the top of the mountain, yeah. in, in that way, sort of you know, put your flag in and <laughs> and off you go, sail off into the sunset. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to take a quick break just now and uh, and come and hear about what it takes to get to that sunset. I guess. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wrestle Me is a show where two men watch every WrestleMania from 1 to 37, unpicking the multicolored threads that tie it all together. I think it's slightly something to do with the fact that Americans don't really like cell phones, do they? Right. I think they've all got basic ones, <laughs> basically. <laughs> That's a big shout. It is a big shout, but I mean, there is something funny about it, like text messaging never took off in the States. What? I'm, come on now. Never been big. <laughs> 
<laughs> Whether you're a lapsed fan or someone who doesn't give a flying laureate about it, there's something for everyone. If you can get a crowd to boo you for kicking a fabulous ladder. <laughs> fabulous ladder. And the crowd are booing. Yeah. Get just, off that lovely ladder we've just learned about. It's a beautiful polysexual ladder. It's a, it's a beautiful Humber shabby chic yeah. creation. If you climb up to it, ecstasy can be found at the top. <laughs> Listen via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your pods. Wrestle Me is a Stakhano production. All right, guys, welcome back to the book club today with Annie Aluko in with Jim and me to talk about her book, They Don't Teach This, all about her life as a professional footballer and a tiny bit heading off into the sunset, as we just mentioned. Before the sunset arrived, I don't think it's the sunset, is it, Annie? You're, what, 33? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, people have told me that I, I retired very early, um, but I think people forget I started very early. Yeah. Mm. And you've um, achieved, as so we've talked about. In relative terms, it's been a long, long, long journey. We've You've achieved an enormous amount. And, yeah. and you've also, as we mentioned in part one, we've talked about all sorts of different areas of not just the sport, but also law that you that you got involved in, working part-time in a law firm, completing all those exams while playing for England, playing for Team GB. Mm. I mean, you know, one of the... Would you say one of the most difficult things you had to contend with was this period of time where um, you ended up talking to the or having to deal with questions within the England women's setup about mm. how, I suppose, about how the FA was running the women's game? Um, I guess the summary of it is that uh, in 2014, Mark Sampson became the boss of the England women's team. Yeah. And you were at that stage building a career at Chelsea you'd you'd go on to become the side's all-time top scorer you were named in the women's player of the year in the 2015 double winning season yes not bad yeah um and anyway Mark, Mark Sampson came in you know you seem to be in the form of your life for your country too you were top scorer in world cup qualifying for the 2015 tournament you started to feel as though he didn't maybe value you as a player as much as you were used to I guess with Hope Powell and then as time went on you started to hear strange comments about you and another player and you started to feel as though there was something bigger going on is that yeah. is that a good summary of no, it? No that's a perfect summary um, I, I think that you know as you said at that point I was 11 years in um, so I was a senior player and somebody that you know for me felt like I was very important to the journey of where the women's team had gone I sort of was always somebody that used my voice to try and improve standards for the women's game, not just for myself, but for the whole team and for the whole game. Um, it's a real passion of mine is, is the women's game. Um, so I felt that the level of respect based on that and in comparison to other people um, who probably didn't have as much experience um, was was slightly odd. Um, but, but often when a new manager comes in, you, there is a sort of, you know, it's like it's like dating. You're sort of trying to suss each other out, um, and so I, I was just you do what footballers do, and you just sort of say, okay, well, I'll just show you on the pitch, which I actually I felt like I was doing. Um, was you know, as you said, I was having a very very good season with Chelsea, and I I almost felt like the more the the more successful I was becoming, the worse the treatment got. Um, and one thing I hope has come across in the book as well is that, you know, whether it's racism, whether it's bullying, whether it's sexism, often these behaviours are silent. 
they're, they're not always something that's said. Mm. It's a feeling. It's um, it's a set of behaviors by a group of people towards you that makes you feel incredibly isolated. And as I said, after eleven years, I'm not supposed to feel isolated. Mm. That's my home, right? I'm mm. an England player. I've, I've earned it. I've earned the right. Mm. Um, so it was just really, really horrible because I felt so isolated. I felt so paranoid. I felt like people were talking about me all the time, but it was coming from the coach. So of course people were talking about me. They were, he was giving them license to, um, and later actually admitted that to me. So, um, it was a really, really difficult time, um, in my life because it really just made me question like, you know, leadership and, and, and how the, the culture of, of the England team, um, and where it was kind of leading to. Um, yeah, diff- really, really difficult time. The, probably the hardest time of my life, actually. It's it's quite a tough read at points, reading about that, mm. purely because, as you said, there's a lot of insidious stuff happening where the treatment yeah. of you can be read in a lot of different ways, which right. is probably by design because, you right. know, exactly. you know, it, it, it reads very much as if, and the situation clearly seems you've been, you've been a, a victim of racism and sexism and all, all kinds of different things. But it, it, I almost get the impression that on the surface, it was like you were being victimized for being uh, an introvert. Like, mm. because, you know, you holiday alone sometimes and yes. sometimes you keep yourself to yourself and some people just do, you yes, know, some people are just yeah. introverted and then like, oh, you don't join in is actually this right. horrible yeah. Trojan horse for a lot right. of other things that were un- under the surface. And it feels like, right. um, it feels like the FA had control of the narrative for a long, long time and tried to sort of paint you as a difficult person. Yeah. Well, well the FA, the FA stuff actually didn't come in until much later. So... Um, Mark Sampson came in in 2014. Um, it didn't. This this sort of episode didn't go public until 2017, and that's when the FA stuff really started to double down because effectively they were protect, protecting him. Mm. Um, so there was a two year period really where this stuff was going on for quite a long time, and um, as you said, because I felt so isolated, um, I was kind of isolating myself. Yeah. Um, and and actually, I do like to kind of go for walks on my own, and and you know, I I have an independent mind, um, and and I think in 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 a lot of cultures, whether it's corporate cultures, whether it's team sport cultures, there's this kind of risk of groupthink, where everybody has to think the same, talk the same, look the same, mm. be the same. It's super dangerous because actually, what about individuality? We're all different, so you shouldn't feel demonized for having a different view and as I said I was always somebody who used my voice nobody cared about that before Mark Sampson arrived mm. when he arrived and created a culture where that was wrong I was then the black sheep um for for one of a better term so it, it it was like I was balancing okay I'm here to play football and I, I just want to get in and get out and this is part of a culture I just feel really really strange in and and don't feel like my voice wants to be heard so gradually my voice just became I just wasn't speaking I just didn't speak to anyone Mm. um and I I suppose it was sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy Mm. because you were then 
it was then pointed out that you weren't joining in if you yes. felt things weren't going your way. And, yeah. the, you know, the reactions, your reaction to being badly treated was then used as another stick to beat you with, it, right, it, right. it sounds like. So one of the things I found really interesting was that it seemed like some of your teammates were susceptible to this idea as well. And there's a, there's a point where um, um, the England team run over to celebrate with the manager when the start, yes. stuff had started to come out. So I, I'm interested, since the book has come out and you've you've been able to, you know, have your right of reply and get your side of the story over. Has has that changed sort of some of the perceptions of people that you knew at the time? And has that been like, has that, have you, has it, have you managed to take control of the narrative again a bit? Have people reacted to you differently now that they actually know what really happened? Yeah, no, definitely. I think, um, so the FA side of it um, was, so once, so let's rewind a little bit. So I was asked, ironically, to be part of a culture review by the FA team. Um, and their view was, you've been in the team a long time. Give us your views on the culture confidentially. And I actually saw it as an opportunity to just be really honest and say, look, guys, like I'm struggling. And a few other people who look like me are too. So um, you so you didn't think that that was all part of a sort of a setup? That that felt to me as though that was something... It, it, it felt like... Well, not at the time, no. Uh, maybe naively, I just thought, oh, okay. And I'd always got on with the FA. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. I did my work placement at the FA, like... So it wasn't odd for them to ask me to do, do something. I, I, you know, I used to pretty much be the media spokesperson for the team, you know. Because so you speak so well, yeah. It wasn't odd. So I was like, okay, cool. Like, I'm going to be honest, if it's a safe space and it's if we're confidential, I'm going to tell them that, like, this has been a struggle. Mm. Um, you know, forget what's going on on the pitch and me being able to score goals. Like, I'm, I'm struggling. Um, and I did that. And... Um, you know, next within ten days, I was dropped from the team, um, and then I sort of started to figure out what was going on or what I perceived what was going on, and um, then next minute it was in the papers. So once it got into the papers, it was then David v Goliath, media machine, smear campaign. She's bitter. She's angry. She was a bully anyway. All of this really nasty, sinister stuff. Um, that I then had to kind of put my right of reply. And I think when I did that with the BBC and with The Guardian, it was like, oh, that makes sense. Mm. Um, And so uh, I think at that time, hopefully it kind of balanced out what was really horrible um, stuff being said about me that just wasn't true. Um, And then, yeah, I, I had the opportunity to kind of in the book really give people an idea of this wasn't something that just happened in 2017. This is like, you know, this is what, what perceived bullying or or racism looks like. Like it's a long, it's a series of events. Mm. Yes. You know, because I think that was the the perception that I really bothered me that it was this like, oh, she got dropped and, and used the race card. It's like, no, like actually, Mm. I complained about this for uh, for a long time. Um, So, and look, there'll there'll always be people who want to think what they want to think. And there'll always be people who um, have a sort of defensive view. I think from the player's point of view, going back to the cultural piece, it was such a strong culture of groupthink, which had its benefits. You know, we we ended up getting to the, you know, get a bronze medal in in the World Cup. It has its benefits on the pitch, but off the field, 
if you don't have, if you don't think like everybody else, you're isolated, you're, you're ostracized. So um, it wasn't a surprise to me that most of the players who benefited from that culture weren't going to back me. <laughs> yeah. Don't want to rock the boat because yeah, you have like, yeah, yeah. it's human nature, isn't it? Um, and it's difficult out there. It was obviously a difficult, difficult yeah. time for you. And if and you can see why people who didn't feel as though they had skin in the game because they were actually benefiting yeah. wouldn't want to get involved. And I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, that's not to justify them. Yeah, I no, just, I, I th- yeah, you're right. I think there isn't really. I think it's just an explanation of of how kind of human beings react. It's sure. like, okay, how's this going to affect me? I can't rock the boat. Women's football, you know, was still at a point where like the FA were paying salaries, so it's like I'm not going to give up my life for you any. Like, and and I get that. Um, I think what disappointed me more is that people doubled down and sort 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 of say, well, I never saw any racism, and sort of tried to paint me out to be a liar. So you can not say anything and then you can say something that's actually very damaging. That was the part where I was like, hmm, that's, that's, that's not right. Um, but some, you know, some players since then have privately messaged me and, and sort of apologised and said, look, I, I've realised that actually what happened to you was really, 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 really bad and I wouldn't want it to happen to anyone else. And, and I, you know, and I, I talk about forgiveness in the book. You know, I really had to get to a point where I was like, I let it just, I let it go. Mm. and you know I lost my England career because of this so I let I had to let it go it was eating away at me I was angry I was um so it it, it, I've sort of let it go and risen above and 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 I see it kind of now as that door closed and so many other doors opened maybe I wouldn't have been able to go to Juventus maybe I wouldn't have sort of done lots of the punditry stuff I've been able to do like there's so much I've done since then that I'm very grateful for Um, And I think if we look at some real bad, difficult moments in our life like that, then we're able to sort of put them in a box and, you know, learn from it. Mm. That's a common trope, though. I mean, when we spoke to Paul Cannaville, uh, Chelsea's first black player for a book club a little while ago, he said that he'd had people come up to him in the context of racism. He'd had people come up to him who had been abusing him on the terraces and calling him like unspeakable, mm. disgusting things had subsequently come up to him maybe like 10 years later and said, oh, yes, you know, I want to apologise, which is, I guess, good that someone's gone on a journey like mm. that. But it, is it not? I think we're products. I, I think w- without even knowing it, people are products of their environment. Mm. And you want to fit in. You want to fit in. So you do things that like, you know, there's all sorts of books on this. Like you know, people talk about... A crowd think, effectively. Crowd think, group think. You know, there's, you know, without sort of making any sinister, really sinister comparisons, but like, you know, I've read books on sort of Nazi soldiers who did really awful things, but actually didn't want to do it. Mm. So, so it's like, it's that, it, it's that kind of, and back in Paul Carnival's time, it was okay to shout those kind of things. It was cultural. But, you know, you know, so people come to the realisation in their senses a lot of the, the the messages I received from players was this year when the George Floyd stuff happened. And they're like, oh my God, like when I had the time to do something, I didn't. Yeah. Or I didn't even notice it to go by their own right. yeah, so accounts of it. People come to a realisation later and, it, and it's okay because it's like, I'd rather you come to it than just pretend like everything was fine. <laughs> Um, but I think a lot of people just are product, yeah, they're products of really quite damaging cultures. It's tough being that 
canary in the coal mine though, isn't it? Like you having to go in and, yeah, and suffer that. It and is tough. But like I said, you know, I I try not to, I don't see myself as a victim. I see myself as somebody that, okay, that was meant to happen to me. My career, England career was meant to end in that way. And as a result, there's many things that I've done that other players can't, don't, didn't have the benefit to do. Um, and I, I kind of look at it like that, like, okay, that door closed and um, lots of other amazing doors opened. It wasn't great. It wasn't fun. But it's a bit like, a, you know, a bad relation and, and a relationship that ended and you just think, oh, thank, you know, thank God I'm not with him anymore or her. <laughs> you know, it's a bit like yeah. you kind of look back and you're like, okay, well, it's all right. What you came on to do afterwards, uh, yeah. it'd be nice to talk about a little bit as well. Being the first female pundit on Match of the Day in 2014. Yeah. That's really massive because what it's one of those examples of a tide turning like instantly. Mm. The day before that had never happened and was never going to happen. And then that day, it, it, you know, and it opens yeah. the door for all of the success that, that lots of people, you know, including plenty I could think of as as people I really admire uh, and of course like Scott who's doing so well you know in mainstream television as well yeah. if you like these days but how did that come about because so you were still very much you know a full-time athlete at that stage when you yeah so um I think just a build-up of things really so I, I'd sort of done a lot of um sort of small interviews for the England team um I was always kind of the one that was sort of pushed forward to do interviews and I was happy to do so um and had built a kind of rapport with lots of different journalists and reporters who just kind of enjoyed the fact I was so open. Mm. Um, and um, I, I got an agent around the same time um, and I wanted to kind of just try and develop my media career a little bit. Um, so I did lots of like kids TV stuff and like lots of little like radio stuff and um, which gave me confidence that I could do it. Yeah. Um, and then after about two years, it came the opportunity to do Match of the Day. And I think this is when the media was starting to kind of try and see, OK, let's try and include women in this. <laughs> you know, let's let's see. Um, and I was sort of a beneficiary of that, um, maybe an experiment <laughs> at the time. <laughs> um, so I did feel the weight of responsibility um, because I, I knew that if I don't do well, I'll just be cast off as, oh, she's a woman. She doesn't know what she's talking about. So I really... I saw it as an opportunity and not a barrier. Um, it's really tough though, because a lot of, you know, a lot of being good at broadcasting, as you know yourself yeah. now that you've done quite, a, you've done a hell of a lot, yeah, yeah. is not just the preparation, which you obviously, and mm. you can hear in the book, if you want to learn how to be a pundit, get this book, guys. <laughs> it's really interesting about how any prepared and, and very different to, to many people, as you also mentioned, mm. who turn up and are like, what are the bloody games? What are we doing here? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, uh, you know, you obviously prepared a lot, but a lot of the the way of being good at broadcasting, I think, it comes with practice. So there's a massive yeah. pressure on you to it turn up. And it was huge pressure, but I think I just said to myself, and maybe this is, part of my legal training as well like as a lawyer you prepare a case um and you know there's a sort of end date where you go into court and you sort of present that case and you win or you lose it was a little bit like that in the sense that I was like right if I know my stuff and I know you know I know sort of my topics and what I'm talking about then it's then it's just about delivery um and I had really good advice at the time from my agent who said just pretend it's like 
mates in you know you're just chatting like with your mates in a living room um and so when i got on the show it was john motson and uh kevin kilban huh and oh, yeah, um, of course. really you know they were really warm and really lovely which helped and um yeah it was just easy it just felt <laughs> easy but it felt easy because i i i had sort of rehearsed what my opinion was on the topics of the day Mm. Um, it wasn't sort of off the cuff. Yes. Um, and I knew that if I if I did all right, then it would be like, it would open the door for so many other women. It's like, oh, sh- women can do it. Yeah. I kind of put that pressure on myself, um, which maybe isn't healthy, but I think that's the reality. Um, if you're the first one to do it, you've got a target on your back. It's a classic syndrome, yeah. Of, yeah. And if you represent, because you're the one person in, yeah, in there, yeah. you're representing all of the other all people the who other are a people, bit like you. Yeah. And did you expect, I mean, you know, Jim mentioned earlier that kind of toxic uh, Twitter mob style life. Actually, did, Twitter at the time was was really nice to me. Like, I, I don't remember seeing anything negative at the time. Um yeah it was fine um it was really it gave me a lot of confidence to do more at the time and I think shortly after I did I was the first um player to do the ITV highlights for the men's European championships um so it gave me a lot of confidence because I felt like I felt like you know I was kind of accepted in the world of punditry at the time it's slightly different now it's ironically sort of 12 years on from that um I actually feel now, even as an experienced pundit, that people are just waiting for me to make a mistake. Um, so, for example, I did a Man U game not long ago and it was a bit of a tongue twist. I was talking about Marcus Rashford and, and Mason Greenwood in the same sentence. And in, I ended up saying Mason Greenford um, because Rashford Green... Yeah. Anyway, said I'd said the right name for the first 45 minutes of the show. <laughs> Um, I mean, I know it's Mason Greenwood and um, ended up saying Mason Greenford and it was like, oh my God, she doesn't know. <laughs> she's never she heard of this guy. <laughs> Get her off the telly. And it's like, come on. Yeah. This, so, this... so it's just that kind of, that's the pressure because it's like, we're imperfect, you know, and, and you've got to be, even as, as sort of in terms of delivery, I mean, you guys will know you do this for a living. Like you want to just flow, yeah. right? And, you know, maybe if you want to correct yourself, you, you do. But if you go in there thinking, I have to be absolutely pitch perfect, say the right thing, it's 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 de- debilitating. Yeah, you um, sound like a robot as well. Right, right. And and I think that's the double standard for women because a, a bloke can go on and maybe make that mistake. And it's not even because we're conditioned to see him... Mm. But we're not conditioned yet still to see, well, a lot of people aren't necessarily conditioned to hear a woman's voice, let alone see a woman. So it's like mistake out. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's hard. mistake out. And that goes for all women right. as well. That's the thing. Precisely. That, yeah. Precisely. And, it, and it's this kind of, oh my God, what a sky doing? Or what a be, well, you know, this movement towards more women is a joke. And it's just really nasty. Um, but you got to kind of push through that. And I think that's why, you know, people like Alex, Scott, it's just amazing because you, you sort of the, your skin gets thicker, mm. um, and you've got to be able to tell yourself the people that matter think I'm good. It's all festering underneath that app, <laughs> and I think Twitter now need to really do something about it. Um, yeah, but, but we also have a choice of whether to be on it or not. Quite. 
That is true, but people say <laughs> you shouldn't leave the playground just because the bullies are in there, That's don't they? And, and, and I mean, in your case, to bring it back to where we started, you know, you can pull all of your thoughts on a nice book that people can buy exactly. and uh, take home and read, which I ve- we very much recommend. Yeah, heartily, absolutely. We Thank you very so much, much recommend that, you go, that everyone should read. It's um, Aniola Aluko, They Don't Teach This. Pick up a coffee now at all good bookshops and make sure to subscribe to Football Ramble Presents wherever you get your podcasts. On the Continent Lives Here and the next edition of Book Club will head straight to you when it's out in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks for listening to the Book Club with the three of us. We'll catch you next time. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the ACAST Creative Network. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.